I'll invite you to open your personal copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 11. And if you don't have your own copy, then you can use the Pew Bible found directly in front of you. Luke 11, down on page 1033. 1033. In our modern world, prayer has fallen on hard times. Maybe you've felt this or heard this yourself. There's almost little to no belief that prayer does anything these days. In fact, when people, public figures make the statement, oh, our thoughts and prayers are with so-and-so, they're mocked. What good's that going to do? They think they're doing something by saying that their prayers are with these people, and yet it's not going to do anything. They're just babbling into emptiness, or so it seems, to the modern secular world. And so people resort to simply saying, oh, my thoughts are with these people, as if thoughts are going to do anything better or provide any sort of consolation. Of course, this erosion of secularization is not just out there, right? We also sense it in here and even in here. The subtle doubts and questions of whether prayer actually accomplishes anything, whether these words that I say into empty space to a God I can't see, are they actually going to do anything? Are they going to bring about any result? We have questions in our own minds, do we not, about whether prayer actually works. Unfortunately, even our theology sometimes can cause us to question whether prayer works. For those of us that emphasize the sovereignty of God, which the Bible rightly teaches, we go, if God is so sovereign over all things, if he does whatever he pleases, then why would God listen to me? Why would this little prayer that I whisper to him, why should that change anything in real time and space? Why would he even answer that if he's so big and so sovereign? Does my prayer actually do anything? And so we look at all that's going on in the world, the craziness, the fighting, seemingly going off the rails, big, powerful people and nations that are changing things at lightning speed. And we wonder if really dropping to our knees and bowing our heads is going to change a single thing. And so it's because of this phenomenon that we need to be reminded from the Bible again what prayer is and why prayer works. In other words, we need assurance. We need our hearts strengthened to know that God indeed hears our prayers and God acts on our behalf. This is not a figment of our imagination. This is truth, capital T truth that we can take to the bank any time of any day. Jesus wants us to have confidence when we pray, which is why he taught a class on prayer, as we've been seeing in Luke 11. He wants us to depend upon his Father and to watch him act. The preacher A.C. Dixon once wrote, when we depend on organizations, we get what organizations can do. When we depend on education, we get what education can do. When we depend upon man, we get what man can do. But when we depend upon prayer, we get what God can do. Jesus wants us to recapture that belief in prayer. That prayer to his Father is not words that hit the ceiling or go into empty space, but they're heard by an almighty, loving Father in heaven. And so let's begin by reading our passage once again, Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13 as Jesus teaches us on prayer. Follow along as I read. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us 
and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give any, him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Last week, we began to look at this passage, Jesus' class on prayer. And we see that Jesus taught on the what, the how, and the why of prayer. And so it gives us three qualities that should characterize our prayers today. Three qualities. And last week, we looked at the first quality, and that was that our prayers should be biblical. Our prayers must be biblical. And we see this in verses 1 through 4. The occasion, reminds you again, is that Jesus himself was praying, and the disciples who were there listening to Jesus address his Father were so drawn and so impacted by his prayer that they said, Lord, please teach us to pray. They wanted to pray like he prayed. And Jesus was happy to answer their request. And so he gives them um, and gives us a model prayer for us to follow. As I said last week, I don't believe that these necessarily need to be quoted verbatim, but really Jesus is giving us categories to include in our prayers. Four biblical categories. And the first that we saw was God's preeminence. Our prayers should address God's preeminence. He taught us to begin our prayers by addressing God as Father. This is the biblical model of prayer that we should teach that we should follow and we should teach our children is that we address God as Father. Now, it's not to say that we can't address the Son or we can't address the Spirit, but that should be the exception, not the rule. The biblical example is to address God as Father. And we have that privilege. And as we pray to God as Father, we treat His name as holy as we began our service speaking about. We pray that God would cause his name to be treated as holy, that he'd be shown to be holy before all the nations. And we know that that'll happen when the kingdom comes at the end of the age, when his name will ultimately be vindicated and he redeems Israel, as we saw in Ezekiel 36 last week. And so we participate in bringing about the kingdom by praying that God would bring it to earth. And so our prayers participate in God's huge end times plan to vindicate his name as we prioritize the preeminence of God. So we begin our prayers focusing on the Lord, and then we turn to our needs. Look at, secondly, God's provision. The second category of requests that God, Jesus teaches us is that we pray for God's provision. Our basic necessities give us each day our daily bread. I believe the daily bread here is a a catch-all for us to speak of our daily necessities. Food, shelter, clothing, medical care, transportation, the things that we need to live life upon this earth. Not extravagance, but basic necessities. It's encouraging to note that in the midst of this prayer, that not all the requests are simply spiritual requests, but Jesus recognizes our need for physical necessities here upon this earth. And that he says, you're going to need these things, and so ask my Father, and he'll give them to you. He'll provide for you. Trust him, and he can provide. So we pray for God's preeminence, God's provision. Thirdly, we looked at God's pardon. We pray for God's pardon. We ask for God's forgiveness for our sins. Though we, our sins have been forgiven in the ultimate sense, we've been justified by faith, there is a need for daily reconciliation with the Lord. Our relationship gets clouded by our sin and we want to get that out of the way. We want to get that cleared up. And so we go to God confessing our sin before him, seeking to clear the air. And so when we sin against God, there's a debt that stands there and we know that he will forgive us of that. And so we, he clears that debt in forgiveness. 
And this is same true interpersonally. When we sin against one another, there's now a debt that stands between us. And so we ask for forgiveness. Would you please forgive this debt? Which is why in Jesus' prayer here, it references, we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Not just financially, but relationally. And so this is why we teach our children and we model in our marriages that when we are seeking to reconcile with somebody, we don't just say, say, we don't just say sorry and leave it at that. We might express our true sorrow, but then we say, sorry, please forgive me. Would you please remove this debt? Will you please forgive, the, forgive this debt? We need to clear the air and get it out of the way. And so Jesus highlights that seeking God's pardon should be a regular part of our prayers. And as we do that, we have to evaluate, have I been forgiving other people as well? And that's what he's, the reason he references our forgiveness is that we, if we're asking forgiveness from God, we too should be forgivers of others. So, and finally, the fourth category of requests that Jesus taught us here for our prayers to be biblical is for God's protection. And lead us not into temptation, he said. This is a prayer that God would keep us from sin. That we would not enter into those, that temptation, that we would fall into that temptation, that we would indeed sin against the Lord. Of course, temptation comes but we want to ask God that we would not sin in the midst of that temptation. This prayer that finishes the, the, the model prayer here, lead us on temptation, is founded upon where the prayer began. Hallowed be thy name. We must establish in our hearts the holiness of God before we'll even care about not sinning. The reason we pray, God, help me not to sin, lead, us, lead me not into temptation, is because we don't want God's name to be profaned in our lives. We don't want his name to be trampled upon. We don't want to disgrace his name in how we live. And so because God is holy, because he is pure and his law is perfect, we don't want to sin. We don't want to transgress his law. And so we ask God, please protect me. Left up to myself, I will sin. But I need your holy protection upon my life that I would not fall to this temptation again. And so we pray diligently that, Lord, would you lead, us not, lead me not into temptation? Now, these requests are grand. God's preeminence, provision, pardon, and protection. But again, we ask, how do we know these are going to be answered? We know God is sovereign. We know he does all that he pleases. He can do anything. He is all-powerful. If he wasn't all-powerful, if he wasn't sovereign, then prayer would be pointless. And so we all must start with the foundation that God is powerful and God is sovereign. He's able to do these things. And so there's, biblically, there's no conflict between God's sovereignty and us praying. In fact, God has chosen to work through our prayers to accomplish his purpose. How crazy is that? His purposes work in the, this world through the prayers of people, and it's absolutely amazing. There are things that God wants to do through your prayers. Don't underestimate the power of prayer, because God uses it. But here's the thing. In order for us to believe that God is going to hear our prayers and answer them, we don't just need to be convinced of his sovereignty, we also need to be convinced of his willingness. Is God willing to act on our behalf? I mean, sure, he's the great all-powerful God who's up there in the heavens and he can do anything that he pleases, but is he even disposed towards us? Does he even want to act on our behalf? Because you see, if, if God is unwilling, then it pulls the rug out from prayer altogether. Then we're throwing our requests at the door of one who may or may not answer. And it, we don't have any desire to even pray to such a one. But if we know the Father is ready and he's willing to hear us and to act, then we have every reason to go to him. And that is where Jesus turns to next in his class on prayer. And that leads us to our second quality of our prayers. First, to be biblical. Secondly, to be bold. Our prayers should be bold. And we see this in verses 5 through 10. 5 through 10. So after teaching on for what we should pray, he then turns to how we should pray. How should we offer these requests? And he does this by telling a parable. Verse 5, look at it. He says, and he said to him, which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, 
Lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. Jesus pulls us into the story because he says, which of you has a friend and you will go to him at midnight? So now we're pulled into the story and we're to imagine ourselves going to a friend and knocking at the door at midnight. Do we have a friend such as this? The parable paints the scenario of a friend who uh, receives a guest late in the day. The guest was traveling, came in late. The man apparently was not expecting him and therefore is left scrambling to find adequate food for him. You see, in village life, it was customary to provide a full meal for a traveler who came in and that you provided hospitality to. It wasn't just, oh yeah, I have a few leftover scraps and crumbs over here that you can eat. Uh, It was, I need to provide a full meal for this guest. Otherwise, I I have disgraced them. And even though the initial request here is for three loaves of bread, there was more that would be needed. And in fact, that is seen even by the end of the parable, end of verse 8, it says that the friend gave him whatever he needed, which seems to indicate more than just bread. This host says he has nothing to offer his, his guest. This probably doesn't mean that he has zero scraps of food in his house. It just means he has nothing adequate by which he can provide such an honored guest. It's very likely he was out of bread, or at least fresh bread. You see, it was not not right to give old bread to a guest. You needed to give fresh bread to uh, someone who was visiting. In village life, it was common for them to bake bread in a communal way. There was a communal oven, and, and the ladies of the village would come and bake the bread for the day. And so you knew who, would, was, who had recently baked the bread. It was something you'd bake for a few days, and you'd have on hand before it went bad. And so uh, it was pretty common to know, oh, who's, who's out baking today? And therefore, this friend gets the knock at midnight, very possibly because they have the fresh bread. The host here, of which we are to identify with, is in a crisis of hospitality. He's got to provide for this guest, or his reputation will be blackened. And this is why he has awakened his friend at midnight. Now, after, upon hearing the desperation of his, the man at his door, the man inside the house abruptly turns the man away. Notice what he says. He says, verse 7, and he will answer from within, do not bother me. Go away. And this response would have been shocking to this, the original hearers. To think that someone could be, not only deny the request, but do it so rudely, so abruptly. Don't bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. He gives some excuses here. He says the door is shut, very likely latched as well, not just closed. You know, you, and, and then he's got his kids on the floor. It, it was a one-room house, and so it was very, you know, possibly you're trying to get the kids all down. Okay, they're all in their beds, and you shut the door, one final big loud uh, clanging of the metal, and you kind of go and you lay down, and you're just crawling in. Ah, and then, hey, Joe, Joe, can I get some bread? You're like, go away. I just laid down, the door is latched, my children are sleeping. These excuses are understandable. But in light of the responsibility to care for one another, not only scripturally, but just even societally at this time, uh, these are absurd. You can always put the kids back to bed. But we've got a a major crisis on our hands because, you see, the honor of, of not only the host was that, was in play, but the honor of the village was at play. Because if the village itself, these small villages could not, as a community, provide for this guest, it would look bad upon them. And yet this man, although providing understandable excuses, they are cold-hearted excuses. He has no warmth of love for the man at his door, the host that's asking for bread. Essentially, he's saying, your request is too inconvenient for me to answer. I, 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 
yeah, sure, I could open the door. I could, you know, potentially wake up the kids and put them back, but that's just too inconvenient for me. It's too burdensome. I, I, I don't want to go through all that. And so the original audience goes, I don't know anybody that cold-hearted. Not in our village. But Jesus reveals that even though this man was so cold-hearted, he eventually gives what the host requests. Look at verse 8. He says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, the key to interpreting the reason why this man got up to give uh, this, these provisions to the man at his door is all found in how you translate what the ESV has here as impudence. It's a tricky word, and it's only here in the New Testament. So when a word is only in one place in the New Testament, it can often be a lot of debate because there's no other things to compare it to to see how other biblical authors would have used it. There's outside extra-biblical literature we can turn to, but there's no biblical literature. And this word has had a strange history of, of translation. For example, the King James Version, translated first in 1611, translates it importunity. The New King James Version and the New American Standard has persistence. The NIV 1984 has boldness. The NIV 2011 has shameless audacity. The Christian Standard Bible has shameless boldness. And ESV has impudence. So that just gives you a little bit of sampling of how there's a little bit of debate over what this word means and how it fits into our story. Again, this is the only place it's used in the New Testament. And in every place in ancient Greek literature, it's used negatively and means shamelessness, almost exclusively. Shamelessness. There are no examples in ancient literature where it means persistence. It seems best to understand that the translation persistence or importunity, as even the uh, King James Version has it, came about as an idea of how they were interpreting this passage. And therefore, as they interpreted this passage, it seemed like this is referencing this man's uh, persistence of not stopping to knock. And therefore, this word shameless must mean some sort of persistence. And so slowly over the centuries, the meaning of the word changed to where it was then translated persistence fairly regularly. Now, this idea of shamelessness, again, is what this word has met, means in all the ancient literature makes sense because ancient societies were based more on honor shame than ours is today in the Western world. But even today, when we speak of someone being shameless, we generally mean that they, were, they should be ashamed by their actions, even though they aren't. And so the best rendering of the word, I believe, is shameless, shamelessness which is represented in the New American Standard footnote and in other modern translations in, in other, some sort of way. Now, there are two ways that we can understand the shamelessness. One is that it relates to the knocker's lack of shame in awakening his friend at midnight. This guy is shameless. He's willing to go at any time of the night, and he's willing to knock no matter how loud and call out no matter how loud in order to get what he needs. He's shameless. That's one way to understand it. But the other is that it refers to the sleeping friend inside who rises not because of his ties of friendship, as the passage says, not because he's his friend, but because of his desire to not be shamed. Now, most commentators, even translations, as I showed you the list earlier, side with the first interpretation. This has to do with the knocker, not with the sleeper. They would say that we should then approach God with a shameless boldness. But I believe that the second interpretation makes more sense grammatically. Verse 8, as Jesus is summarizing the parable and driving it home, is all about the man in the house. He's referencing that he will not give up and give him anything because he is his friend Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. The emphasis of the verse is on the man in the house. And therefore, his shamelessness seems to better refer 
to that man. Again, ancient Israel was an honor-shame society, so it makes perfect sense for a man to rise up out of a desire to not be shamed. Listen, listen, buddy, I'm not your friend, but I don't want to get a blackened reputation here, so I'm going to get up and give you what you need. All right, here you go, here you go. All right, good night, shut the door, and go back to bed. I believe this word shameless here, again, we typically hear the word shameless and shamelessness as, as something uh, super negative, but I think it's similar was employed here similarly in the, a similar way that we use the word blameless. Blame is a bad thing, but blameless is a good thing. And so here, shame is bad, and the man in the house desires to be without shame, so he's shameless. And so he gets up and he acts. Now, whether you followed that or not, listen, both interpretations lead to two of the same conclusions, okay? So if you lost me there for a minute, come back and, and hear these two, these two conclusions that Jesus wants us to get from this parable. And I believe that both interpretations get us here. First, God is contrasted with the man in the house. God is contrasted with the man in the house. God is not like the sleeper. The sleeper who is reluctant to give anything and the only reason he gets up is because he doesn't want to be shamed because of social pressure, you could say. God is not like that. God acts. God is willing to act. I mean, God, and God is never bothered. God never says, go away, don't bother me. God's not like that. God, I mean, can you imagine God saying, oh, don't bother me with that prayer request. I have enough of your troubles. Can't, can't you see I need some rest from these piddly types of, of interruptions over your trivial concerns? No, no, no. The door is locked. The angels are quiet. And I'm busy with other things. Right? We can't imagine God ever saying anything of the sort. They'd be against his character. And that's Jesus' point. God is not like this man who is reluctant to act. God is willing able to act. God is generous. And so we can charge into his throne, throne room with our requests. We can make our requests of God no matter how big or small they might be. And that's the second thing that we can take away from this parable. First is that God is not like the man in the, in the house. He, he, he's, he's willing rather than reluctant. The second thing is that we learn that we can boldly seek God in our prayers. We can boldly seek God in our prayers. Again, even if the shamelessness doesn't apply to the knocker and therefore as a point of application that we should be shameless too, I believe that because God is this willing, we should be bold in our requests. No matter how crazy our requests may seem, no matter how big or small, no matter how, how many obstacles seem to stand in the way, no matter how excellent the thing is that we're asking for or how, how impossible it seems that it would come about, we're to pray boldly so that others might hear our prayers and gasp and say, how dare he ask that? Does he, who does he think he is? But we're praying to a willing God. We're praying to one who hears our requests. We can pray in such a bold way because God is an open-hearted, willing God. He's not a reluctant neighbor. He's able and willing to act on our behalf, friends. And we cannot lose sight of that. Jesus wants us to see that. And we know that this is the right way, the right thrust of this parable because of where Jesus goes in verses 9 and 10. Look at those verses with me, verses 9 and 10. He says, And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Jesus here tells us that we can boldly ask of the Father. Notice that he begins verse 9 with the emphatic words, and I tell you. This is a statement of declaration. This is the Son of God giving us a truth that we can take to the bank, that we can be absolutely certain of. This is the Son of God, our great high priest about to tell us something that comes with the force of his authority. And I tell you. And then he gives us three actions combined with three promises, and those promises are repeated again in verse 10. 
Those three actions that we see are ask, seek, knock. Ask, seek, knock. Now, we're not given a lot of detail about how to understand these three actions. Some commentators have tried to differentiate these as different kinds of prayer, that there's a kind of asking prayer, a kind of seeking prayer, and a kind of knocking prayer, such as uh, the great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon explained asking as those who simply verbalize their prayers, kind of an initial request, and then he describes seeking as those who diligently seek the blessings that they need, and define knocking as an intensified combination of both. And other commentators have tried different levels of intensity in our prayers. But as I, if I study this, I, I have trouble finding being so conclusive that these are really three different levels of our prayer life and that, that our asking is kind of an initial lighthearted ask and then we keep getting more and more serious and more and more passionate as we go in in our request to God and thinking that in some level, if we increase our passion, God's going to increase his answers. I would contend that Jesus uses three synonyms here to emphasize our activity of prayer, to emphasize the need to pray. And so the rising intensity in these three words that are repeated several times in these two verses is not so much our increased passion in prayer, but it's the rising intensity of Jesus' appeal to us to go before the Father. It's like a servant who is given an audience with the king. And he's shaking in his boots. He's going, I'm going before a king. What can I say? What can I request? Can I just ask anything? And the son of the king, in his enthusiasm for the servant, says, yes, go in and ask and plead and seek. He's, intense. he's trying to plead with him with an intensity. And Jesus is trying to do that with us. He's saying, yes, ask. Yes, seek. Yes, knock. Do whatever it takes. Request of my father. By all means, you have full access, so take advantage of it. The Son of God is exhorting us to take full advantage of the access we have with the Father. We're not to leave anything on the table. We're not to be afraid to ask anything. Nothing is too big. Nothing is too small. We bring all our requests to him, and so we can seek, ask, knock, and not be ashamed for doing so. Now, with this exhortation, where he says to, to ask, to seek, and to knock, he gives three promises that accompany those three commands. If you ask, it will be given. If you seek, you will find. And if you knock, it will be opened. Three ways, again, of saying the same thing. God answers the prayers of his children. Friends, Jesus is trying to pound this hammer, this nail deep into our souls that God answers prayer. Don't doubt it. He's repeating it for us. And notice, friends, that this is not a promise given to some super holy saints. He's not giving this promise simply to prayer warriors. Those who spend five hours a day in prayer, they're the ones who will receive their prayers being answered. Oh, friends, even such weak prayers as ourselves can receive and claim this promise as our own that we can go boldly into the presence of God and in those five minutes request something of our Heavenly Father and know that He hears us and He wants to answer our prayer. God delights to hear our prayers. But it, the promises here are pretty uh, unqualified, right? For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. So, God, does that mean, like, I can ask anything and you're just going to, like, give it to me? Well, we, we know our Bible's a little bit better than that to know that God's just a genie that we rub the lamp and he comes out and says, I'll give you three wishes and we can just ask whatever. And he goes, all right, I guess I have to. And he's just going to grant our requests. No, God's not like that. But more seriously, what about unanswered prayer? God, you say that you're going to answer our prayers. But what about those ones that I've been praying for years and you haven't answered? What about the silence of God? We seem to get no response. Well, it's important to interpret these words for as, 
as, as, as bold as, as Jesus is pushing us to be, we need to interpret these words in light of the rest of Scripture as well and realize that these, these promises are not just a blank check to get whatever our hearts desires. We must pray according to God's will and not our own. We must follow Jesus' model. In other words, we can pray those bold requests and expect God to answer. And trust that his will is best. But why can we be so bold? Why can we come so boldly into the presence of God and, and pray such bold requests? It's not because of us. It's not because of our righteousness, because we've done something in order to earn God's favor. No, friends, this is all because of the work of Jesus. And the author of Hebrews highlights this for us. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, verse 19, the author comes to a, a certain, certain concluding statement based upon discussing how Jesus' sacrifice is superior to all of the Old Testament sacrifices. Because Jesus' sacrifice was a once-for-all sacrifice. Therefore, that means something for us who are believers in Christ. Look at verse 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Friends, you see how this, our drawing near to the Lord is made possible by the washing that's happened in our souls by the blood of Christ. It's because of his sacrifice upon the cross that you and I have access to enter the holy places, to make requests, bold requests, to our Father in heaven because of what Jesus has done. It is only because of what Jesus has done that we can pray these bold requests. In other words, Jesus' exhortation to prayer in Luke 11 is all in the shadow of the cross all recognizing what he will accomplish. Remember, we're in the part of Luke's gospel where his face is, is set like flint to go to Jerusalem because he knows the cross is there and he's going to accomplish what is there. He is teaching in light of the cross. He understands that for people to address the Father this way, they need to be cleansed. They need their conscience is cleansed. They need to be washed by his blood and he will go and sacrifice that. And so the question for us, friends, is in light of all that Jesus has done for us, and in light of the command that he gives us to beseech his Father in heaven, do you pray bold prayers? Do you grab hold of these promises and seek to bring those requests before God? Do you go in the blood of Christ seeking to claim what he has offered to us? Bring concerns, big and small. Or maybe have you forgotten the willingness of God? Have you forgotten that God is willing to hear all those burdens upon your heart? That God is willing to listen to your prayers? Let Jesus remind you that you can bring all of those to him anytime, any day. So the two qualities we've seen so far is that there, our prayers are to be biblical, our prayers are to be bold. But finally this morning, as we finish, let's look at the third and final quality, and that is our prayers are to be believing, believing. In other words, they're to be full of faith in who God is. Jesus ends his teaching on prayer by bringing it to a crescendo, highlighting the character of his father. The very one that he calls us to address as father, he says, I want you to know my father. I don't want you to be confused at all about who he is, about who he is deep in his heart and his heart towards you. And so you need to remember who he is. These, verse 11, he says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give 
instead of a fish, give him a serpent. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. Jesus here describes some crazy illustrations. Who, who, which father would give their son something harmful when they ask for something innocent? And the, and the obvious answer is no father would do that. No natural father would seek to trick their son so badly that it gives them something harmful. And Jesus takes this analogy and drives the point home in verse 13 with a lesser to greater argument. Look at it, verse 13. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Notice, first of all, the offhanded way that Jesus affirms the depravity of man. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, This is a teaching that we all need to come to grips with and it's clear throughout the Bible that mankind is totally depraved, evil by nature. This doesn't mean that we're all as bad as we could be without God. It just means that every part of us, material and immaterial, is stained by sin. We are evil apart from God's grace. That's who we are. But Jesus' point is to say that if fathers who are evil in their nature know how to give good gifts to their children then how much more will a perfect, loving, pure, loving Father in heaven know how to give good gifts? And more than just give good things, notice Luke mentions giving the Holy Spirit. He gives the Holy Spirit. Guys, the point of these verses is to point out the character of God, that God is not a stingy giver. He's not closed-fisted. He's far more generous than any earthly father could be. He does not trick his children into giving them something harmful? And conversely, like a good father, if the kid asks for something harmful, God doesn't give it to us. He's a good giver. One commentator put it this way. He said, Jesus means to underscore the consistency and trustability of God. If even sinful fathers, for all their short-sightedness, meanness, and selfishness, can get it right and don't play cruel games with their kids, how much more You can rely on your Father in heaven. We can rely upon him wholly and truly. And friends, God's generosity is seen in that God gives us the best gift. That's, I believe, what Luke is highlighting here. Why the Holy Spirit? Because this is the best gift that God could give. I mean, think about what's going on here. The the second person of the Trinity is saying that the first person of the Trinity, the Father, is going to give the best gift, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. All persons of the Godhead are employed here showing that the unified heart of God is for his people and that he wants to give us the best ever and that means giving of himself. The Holy Spirit here is is a catch-all that's that describes the gift of all the good things that God has planned for believers. Now, the promise of the giving of the Holy Spirit through the new covenant was not realized until the day of Pentecost as recorded in Acts 2. And it's on that day, in fulfillment of Jesus' words, the Holy Spirit came and indwelt all the believers of the early church. And since that day, every person who's trusted in Christ has received the Holy Spirit, has received this gift. He's the possession of every Christian. As Christians, we don't need to pray that God would give us the Spirit. We already have the Spirit. But it's through the Spirit that we receive all the wonderful gifts that God has planned for us. Pastor John MacArthur stated this way. He said, to those who ask for a gift, he gives the giver. To those who ask for an effect, he gives the cause. To those who ask for a product, he gives the source. To those seeking comfort, he gives the comforter. To those seeking power, he gives the source of power. To those seeking help, he gives the helper. To those seeking truth, he gives the spirit of truth. To those seeking love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, he gives the producer of all those things. The indwelling Holy Spirit is the source of every good thing in the Christian's life. Friends, we have been given the Holy Spirit. And this shows that this, the heart of God for us is that we would have true success, that his, that what encapsulates his greatest heart for us is spiritual success. 
Because our salvation blessings come through the Holy Spirit. More than financial success, more than political success, more than career success, more than social success, God, your Heavenly Father, wants to give you spiritual success through the Spirit. And so the point is, is that God is a good giver, and we can trust him to give us good gifts. He works all things according to the counsel of his will, and he causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But sometimes, friends, we know this to be true, but we're tempted to believe otherwise. It particularly happens when our prayers go unanswered or when troubles come our way, when things go different than we expect. We pray for healing, and yet God takes a loved one from us. We pray for provision, and then we lose our job. Or we pray for our family, and God brings trials. And we begin to question whether God is really good, whether is God really the good giver that he's promised to be? Jesus wants us to be reminded afresh that God is not playing tricks with you. You're not asking for something good and God's giving you a scorpion. God's not giving you something harmful. God only gives good gifts to his children. He's completely trustworthy to do what is best in our lives. And so when we don't get the answer that we want, we get silence or we get a no or a a no at this time. We need to remember two factors. One is our sin and secondly is God's wisdom. One of the reasons for unanswered prayer is because of sin in our lives. This could be prior sin. David said in Psalm 66, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. He would not have acted on my behalf. And so we are, if we are living in outright unrepentant sin, if there's sin that we have unconfessed and we go and we ask for something, God is saying, wait a minute, time out. We've got something we've got to deal with first. So we need to, we need to ask for God's cl- cleansing of our hearts. We need to ask for forgiveness. But it could also be because of sinful motives. James chapter 4, verse 3 says, you ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Friends, our motives are all mixed up. We might have, yes, a good motive, and we think that that's why we're asking for something, and then it can be other stuff that's all mixed up inside. And so we need to be checking our motives. Why are we asking for these things? I'm not saying that every time that we get a no or a delay in God's answer is because of sinful motives, but we need to at least check that in our own hearts. But not only in the midst of unanswered prayer do we need to think about our sin, but we need to think about God's wisdom. As we've said all along, God has a plan for our lives, right? God is the one who's sovereign over all things. And we need to trust him. He's the one orchestrating your life, the twists and turns of it. He's orchestrating every member of your family's life. He's orchestrating every friend's life, every single person. God is writing the story. And he knows what he's doing. We pray and we say, God, get this friend out of this trial. And God's saying, no, I need to produce something in him. I need him to stay there. He's got a plan. He knows what he's doing. And again, his goal is spiritual success. He wants us to be sanctified, to be made like Christ. And he makes makes us like Christ through trials, through difficulty, through the very things that we often pray would end. We need to trust his wisdom. We need to strengthen our faith. Not despair and lose faith, but strengthen our faith. God is still on the throne. God can still act. God can still save this family member. We must not lose faith. We must strengthen our faith, friends. Because the heart of God is one who gives good gifts. We must ask all of our requests with an open hand and a submitted heart to God's will and God's wisdom, like Jesus prayed in the garden, not my will, but yours be done, O Father. Whether we receive immediate answers or whether we have to wait a lifetime to receive an answer, we trust in his goodness and his love and depend upon him fully. God hears and answers prayers of his people. And friends, this final promise that he gives the Holy Spirit, we can't pass over this without 
recognizing that those who are without the Spirit, those who do not know Christ, have a promise that if they come to Jesus, they come to the Father and ask for the Spirit, the Father will give that. This means, friends, that if you are without Christ this morning, if you've never repented of your sins and trusted in the one who was crucified, buried, and rose again on the third day, trusting him for your eternal salvation and security, instead living your life your own way, living your, as yourself as Lord, the invitation is open to you today to trust and believe, to go to the Father, to cry out to him for salvation. He will give you his Holy Spirit. He will give you the best gift of all so that you might be what the, spirit, the scriptures call renewed and me made new. You can be given a new heart if you would trust in Jesus. It's through faith that we are renewed and we are changed. And that invitation, that offer is available to all of us who by nature are evil. God knows that we're evil, that we're sinful, and yet he's made a way through his son that we might receive the best gift of all. We might receive himself. We only need to ask and to pray before our heavenly father and he will grant it. Isn't that amazing? Let's bow together in prayer. Our father, we thank you for the promises of your word that indeed you do answer prayer that you are not like a neighbor who ignores us and is reluctant to give. You are a father that is on the edge of your seat, ready to give, if we would but ask. And Father, we thank you for the many things you give us, even though we don't ask. And yet we pray that this morning you would use your word to strengthen our resolve, that we might pray with more vigor, more fervency, more boldness, we pray more along the model of what Jesus gave us so that we might glorify you in our prayers and in our lives, that we might be true disciples of Jesus who follow him in this, in this wicked and perverse generation in such a way that we rely upon you, O oh Father. Our sights are set to eternity. Our sights are set to heaven, not to what is only here and now. Strengthen us, help us to live for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.